Hello and welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast, where we desire to see a world transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, you can send a message to info at mycrossroads.co. Now, let's get our hearts and minds ready for a powerful message from God's Word. Well, good morning, Crossroads family. I'm excited to be with you today. I want to share something that occurred to me just a few minutes ago. Not being um, part of the regular full-time staff, I'm rarely part of any kind of the um, planning um, and of Sunday mornings. Like I, I typically, in fact, uh, a lady can attest that I'm usually just sending her my notes on Friday night or Saturday morning if she's lucky. Um, Travis is usually on Wednesday texting me going, can I have the title and, and the scripture that you're going to be using so I'm not involved in any of the choosing of the music or, or anything that's going to happen up here. And I was sharing with Missy and a few others this morning that when I, I had about a three-week notice, when I pinned this down, um, like with most of my, my talks, I have just bullet points. But there's, there's a lot of white space in between those bullet points as to where God has taken us. And, um, and I was just sharing with us this morning um, that today, more than any, it, it, I felt like that I, I still had a lot of blank, blank spaces in between and not really sure where God was going. But with the, with the songs that were selected and particularly with what Kim um, was sharing just a few minutes ago up on stage, um, it's become um, just clear to me how, just how intimately God causes all things to work together for good. And so um, I just want to share that with you because I'm always kind of awestruck um, when Chuck was praying for me this morning, he, one of the lines that he said was, um, we stand in awe of you, God. And so this morning, um, I am definitely standing in awe of just how intimately um, and broadly he works um, everything together for good. So, um, but with that said, bear with me because there's still a lot of blank space in here. And I'm still um, trying to desperately allow the Holy Spirit to, to guide and lead me. Um, <clears throat> I know we've been in a series. I'm going to deviate a little bit today um, and just kind of share with you something that was that's on my heart um, for us as as a body and as a church. And again, I think um, if you if you recall what's been shared already this morning, you, you'll kind of see how it works together. But um, one of the things for those of you that don't know me, my name is Lenny. I'm the I used to be the youth and college and career pastor here. I'm now the executive director of a nonprofit. We run a Christian retreat center up in Kannapolis. Um, and we do, and we work with at-risk kids and, and things like that. But one of the things that we, we spend the bulk of our time doing is team building. And so we have corporate groups and church groups and um, all kinds of different groups come in and we do team building for them. And there's a couple of different ways that we program that. But one of the things that we started doing about a decade ago for whatever reason was I started, particularly when our small groups, I love getting like uh, church leadership groups together or teams, you know, corporate teams together. And one of the things that I started doing was asking them just to go around the room and tell me two things about yourself. I don't give them any kind of parameters as to what they have to do. I just say, I, I just would like for you to tell me two things about yourself. And what I have found is that there are some pretty common themes. There's about 80% of the people tell me the same two things. And, and I've narrowed down the bulk of what people tell me to about five different categories. And it really doesn't make any difference if it's youth or adult. It, it, it deviates just slightly because obviously adults have more experience in certain things. And so they may, they may broaden that. But 
But they, when I go around and I ask them, they, they usually sum up um, the information they share with me into, into a couple of things. And first and foremost, um, almost everyone, if it's, especially if it's a corporate group or an adult group, will tell me what they do. When I, if I give them a choice, again, no, no parameters, they'll say, usually they'll say, my name is so-and-so and I work at or I am a or whatever. And they'll usually tell me what their profession is, what their career is. Usually that's followed by how many children they have, if they have children. And about 80% of the people will do this. They'll tell me, my name is so-and-so, I do such-and-such, and I have three kids. And if they don't have kids, usually the next choice is they'll tell me um, that they're married, or they'll tell me I'm married, or, um, or they'll tell me where they're from, and they'll tell me either their hobby or their favorite sports team. And that's usually the kind of the top five things that we, that we get from people. If it's high school age kids, they'll usually tell me what school they go to and they'll tell me what sports they play or something. Um, or they'll tell me what hobby or they'll tell me about their talent. And it's always been interesting to me because, I, I, we, again, we didn't set out, we haven't done a scientific study, but we, we've just come to realize that that's, that's what's going to happen. That's how that, that they're going to do that. And I, I've begun to really kind of think about how you and I as individuals kind of market ourselves and find our identity. And, and again, based on this, again, I've got a decade's worth of it, a little over a decade's worth of experience doing this, and I find this happening over and over and over. So I, I'm, I'm forced to believe that it is human nature um, to define ourselves mainly by the work of our hands, the things that we do, right? Um, our families, you know, we'll, you'll usually sum, sum up our existence and, and our identity by our family life. And then kind of our hobbies, the things that we enjoy doing, our, our social or our cultural um, experience. And I would, I would dare say that, that this is the same whether it's a corporate group or whether it's a church group. Obviously, you know, if it's a church group and we tend to do some of the debriefs, spiritual questions or spiritual things come up. And so I, I really have begun to realize that for, for most of us um, in, in, our, in our circle, or most of the people in our circle of influence, we tend to compartmentalize our lives, right? Like we tend to, we tend to, to think of things in the context of our professional life. We tend to think of the context of our family life, our kind of our social, um, our cultural life, and then our spiritual life. But rarely do we realize that those things are mutually inclusive, in fact, you know, a long time ago, uh, Bobby and I, particularly when we were debriefing with corporate groups, would kind of challenge them with this idea about relationship and how we cannot really separate our personal lives from our professional lives. That oftentimes, you know, and I, and I talk to, to quite a few husbands who go, you know, I do my best when I get home at the end of the day to, you know, kind of finish up all my phone calls and turn off work so that I can go inside and just focus on my family. So just a quick unscientific study. How many of you find that that works when you get home? All right, I don't see a single hand going up, okay? All right, so... The reality is that we have a hard time separating our professional life and our personal life. How many of you have gone to work and had a negative experience at home, whether that be with your kids or your wife, and it frustrated you throughout your day? How many of you experienced that? A lot more hands in the air this time, right? How many of you have had a bad day at work and come home and that, that bad day at work spilled over into your personal life? <laughs> okay. All right, even more hands go up, right? 
So, but we constantly are trying to challenge people that, that we have to separate our lives and compartmentalize. And, and I'd say that, that men are probably better at this than others. Right? Like we're notorious for compartmentalizing and trying to compartmentalize our lives. And it doesn't work, right? We're not. And the reason it doesn't work is because we're spiritual beings by our creation and our design, right? So we were created in the image of God. We were created to be his people and to, to and created in his image. And from that, everything else flows. But we live in a fallen world, and that fallen world is counterintuitive to that. And so this fallen world that we live in is constantly trying to teach us that our identity is found in that and that, that it is separate from that of our spiritual creation. And so I, I just want to pause as we, um, as a body, I'm, I'm excited about where we're at. I'm excited about um, some of the changes that we've been making. I'm excited about um, the, the things, the studies that we're doing and just where we're headed. And as someone who's been a part of Crossroads since um, 2002, um, I, I'm excited for the season that we're in. I think we're in one of the, the best seasons that, that personally I've ever experienced here at Crossroads. And I was thinking when I was down here that I, I don't want us to miss the fact that our message is our mission and our mission is the message. And we can stand up here and we can go to classes and we can, we can talk about theology and we can talk about everything. But I don't want us to miss the fact that, that we are the hands and feet and the messengers of Christ. And that everything that we do in our lives needs to be centered in that. And it becomes the overflow of that truth. And so a few weeks ago when I began to study, I've, I've, for the last, I don't know, few months, I've been kind of parked on um, this story that we find in Scripture. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark and Luke both capture the story of the rich young ruler. Um, and there's some slight deviations in, in the, just the two accounts, but, um, but, but for the most part, they're, they're pretty similar, and, and some of the key points are the exact same. And I've preached on, on this topic before, but I preached from a, a slightly different perspective, and I was listening to a message the other day on it and, and got even a different perspective on it. And then as I was beginning to prepare and unpack this scripture to share with you today, the Lord gave me even a different perspective. And so, again, I'm, I'm always in awe of how we can take a passage or a story and just continue throughout our lives to peel back layer after layer after layer and just see deeper and deeper uh, meaning. And so I just want to share a couple of thoughts with us today and, and challenge us in a couple of ways. And so in, in Luke 18, I, I just chose Luke's version um, because um, there were a few things, well, because I had to read it and it was shorter. That's why I chose it really, um, if, you want to, if you want to know the truth, because... Um, but in Luke 18, uh, Luke starting in verse Luke 18, starting in verse 18, he captures he captures this encounter with Jesus and and a certain ruler. And a certain ruler approaches Jesus and he says, he asks him, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus responds, "Why do you call me good?" Jesus answered, "No one is good except for the Father or for God alone." You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. For those who heard this asked, Who can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Man, there's just so much content in, in here, and I, I just want to unpack a few, a few bullet points for us in this. Um, I love the fact that um, both, both Gospels capture this, and, and they both capture the essence of this story. And again, I think for you and I, there's, there's a lot of implication in here. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus, and he starts off by just simply asking a question. Good teacher, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And, and for most of us, that seems like a very reasonable request. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't immediately answer him, but rather responds with a question before he gives an answer. But I was thinking about this question, good teacher, what must I do? And I was thinking about how for you and I, in the world that we live in, um, I, it's always funny to me because we're always talking about how a, a subjective versus objective kind of measurements on things. And, and a, lot of, a lot of what we do, we try to quantify by measuring certain objectives and certain data and things like that um, to justify the effectiveness of what we do. And if we're not cautious and you and I apply those same matrix here in the church, what we wind up with is religion. We were having kind of a conversation in, in admin council the other day, kind of an offline conversation, that we can have religion without having relationship, right? Like we can have religion, you know, because we're spiritual beings by nature, so it's very easy for us to kind of default into religion. But the problem with, with religion is that religion woos us into this false sense of success. And, and it woos us by allowing instant gratification. And we live in a culture and we live in a world that really perpetuates that, that, that sense of self-gratification or immediate gratification. But that's what religion does. That's one, of the, that's one of the defaults of religion. That's one of the hang-ups of religion. That's one of the traps of religion is that it provides this instant gratification. And it does so because religion is rooted in the law, right? It's, it's, it's rooted in a list of do's and don'ts. And so when I, when I have this list of do's and don'ts, when, you know, when, I, when I begin to follow this list of do's and don'ts, what it does is it allows me to evaluate my effectiveness, right? It allows me to, to kind of go, okay, well, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I've gotten more right than wrong, then I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. The problem is it deceives us in its inability to actually change our heart. Behavior modification is not necessarily, does not necessarily translate into heart change. Because there are plenty of us whose behavior is modified out of a fear of the consequence, but we still have the same malice in our hearts. I tend not 
to act on the behavior that my heart says I should when somebody cuts me off, when somebody, when somebody pulls up beside of me um, in, enraged by the way they perceived I was driving, right? Like the, the risk of what could happen to me if I choose to act on how my heart feels in that moment um, modifies my behavior but does not change the murder that is taking place in my heart in that moment, right? And so religion is this false trap that we fall into that somehow it, it gratifies us and, and makes us feel like that, that our heart is being changed when it's really just a system that is, is scaring us into the consequence outweighs the benefit. Romans 8.3 reminds us for what the law could not do in its, in, in it was weak through the flesh, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. So even, even Jesus acknowledges, hey, the law, we gave you the law, right? We gave you the law, but that law did not change your heart. If it did change your heart, we wouldn't have needed a Messiah. So he asked the question, good teacher, what must I do? Now Jesus responds by going, why do you call me good? No one's good but the Father, and I'll get to that. But then Jesus responds by reminding him of what the commandments are. And his response is, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. The problem with religion is that if we stay in religion long enough, religion leads us to self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is equally as deceptive as religion in in that it still continues to woo and feed this sense of gratification. And the reason it does that, or the way that it does that, is that the law simply gives us, you think about the Ten Commandments. So Jesus began to repeat back the Ten Commandments. And he goes, oh, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. Now notice that Jesus did not recite all Ten Commandments. He stopped short of a few. But the, the guy was quick to point out, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. Now... If, if we take the Ten Commandments and you and I, even if, we, even if we fudge a little bit and give ourselves a lot of grace and a lot of credit, I, I would say that maybe, maybe we'll say that we, we've kept seven or eight of them, right? That's still not 100%. But in the world that we live in, 70% is passing, right? That's good enough, right? I mean, at least I'm better than some of you. Right? And some of you are at least better than me. So you see that the problem with religion is that when, we, when we're rooted in religion, it leads to self-righteousness. And self-righteousness feels really, really good. I like the way self-righteousness feels. It makes me feel spiritual. It makes me feel important. It makes me feel significant. It elevates me. It allows me to place myself on the throne of my life where I feel so comfortable. And it does that because it allows me to set the moral standard. Not only for myself, but for you too. And not only does it allow me to set the standard for me and for you, but it allows me to judge my actions and your actions based on my standard. 
And I'll show you how prevalent self-righteousness is. I was listening to an interview today, and I, this is not about whether the accusation is correct or not, but I was listening to a politician talking about the latest scandal and the latest accusation that someone is making about a political figure, and his and it was it was such a, an awesome soundbite. Like I was like, oh, that was crafty. His statement was her version of truth deserves to be, or her truth deserves to be heard. There is no your truth or my truth, there's simply truth. But self-righteousness deceives us into believing that my truth, not the truth, but my truth is the truth. And my truth sets the standard for your truth and your truth sets the standard for my truth. And I believe that Jesus was baiting him, not maliciously, but, but is in order for him to really make this a teachable moment, he needs to demonstrate because your words repeated back to you are oftentimes more powerful when you hear them and go, huh, I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> right? That happens to me all the time when Katie goes, hey, I don't know that you should have said that. And she's like, well, this is, I said, well, this is what I said. And then she says what I said. And I was like, huh, I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. God's reminding us that the law reveals the depravity of our flesh. It's the spirit that changes our heart. So religion leads to self-righteousness. I love what Jesus does next after the rich young ruler has pleaded his case and asked what seemed to be a completely logical spiritual question. Good teacher, what do I need to do to get into heaven? I've kept the commandments. And Jesus goes on to say, hey, if you really want to be perfect, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now, I've taught on this before, and I reminded us that it doesn't say sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It just says sell everything you have and give to the poor. In this moment, I believe that Jesus is inviting the rich young ruler into repentance. Repentance, simply defined, is a turning away from that which leads us counter to the relationship that Jesus is offering. So, this statement doesn't seem like an invitation to repentance, but it really is an invitation to repentance in that it reveals the motivation of his heart, right? It reveals the fact that, hey, you may have kept these and you may be able to say that you, you've got it, you're about 70% successful, but first and foremost, you should have no God before me, and I'm about to reveal to you that your possessions are the object of your worship. They are the very idol in which you place your faith. There's nothing inherently wrong with having stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't, and, and there's nothing in the statement that Jesus says after he sells it and follows him, he can't have other possessions, right? So I'm not, I'm not telling us that we have to go and sell everything and live on the street. I'm not, I'm, that's not what I'm trying to tell us. But what I am trying to tell us is that, that the stuff that we've been given stewardship over is simply the platform and the vehicles and the tools that God has given us to be the mission 
the missionaries that he's called us to be, whether that be in our workplace or whatever. But for the rich young ruler, these had become the very objects of his worship. And they had become the very thing that defined him and where he found his self-worth. I mean, even Adam and Eve were told they were going to have to work. After the fall, God came and said, hey, I'm going to curse the ground, and you're going to have to work it to eat. And, and it's only going to be, and it's going to be hard work. You're going to break a sweat doing it. So I think there's a biblical mandate for you and I to put our hands to the plow and go out into the world and make a living and provide for our families. But, but that's not the means to the end, right? The, the provision is simply to provide us with the opportunity to continue to be the, the saints and the priests that he called us to be in the work environment, in the family environment, in the culture that he's placed us. Some of you may be sitting here and going, well, that didn't really apply to me, Lenny, because I'm not rich. But let me just give you a couple of, couple of things. Um, if you currently have food in your refrigerator, you're wealthier than 75% of the world's population. If you have access to loose change, whether that be in your car, your pocket, or whatever, you're in the top 8% of the wealthiest in the world. The vast majority of Americans live in the top 3% of the wealthiest of the world. Only about 8% of the world's population own a car. Jesus' last invitation is, or next, next statement is, come and follow me. So Jesus identifies that he, his question is rooted in religion. That if he's not cautious, that leads to self-righteousness. He offers him a way to repent and invites him into relationship. This is the same invitation, by the way, that he offered the disciples. Come and follow me. Following him in all areas of our lives. In the way that we serve in the way that we give, in the way that we love, in the way that we parent, in, in the way that we work. This invitation into relationship should define every other area of our lives. Does it define yours? One of the reasons that we started asking that question is we realized that on any given time, particularly when we're doing uh, like leadership classes for the chamber and stuff like that, is we have a pretty broad cross-section of our community sitting in that room. And I started asking that question because what I was really trying to do is regardless of whether you were the president of Carolina's Healthcare or you were an administrator in the school system or whether you were an accountant owning your own practice, that there were, there were common things that, that at, the, at the end of the day, we were all brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, um, parents just trying to get by. And some of us may have greater responsibilities than others, but I was trying to really kind of get them to understand that, that they represented a cross-section of our community. And you and I are the same. 
We come from different backgrounds. We come from different cultures. We come from different experiences. Even in this room, Duke fans and Carolina fans can worship together. Some are definitely more spiritual than others, but we won't, we won't divulge which that is. I want to invite the band back up as I close with a couple of thoughts. For Paul, I, I thought about the words of Paul as I was thinking about this, and, and I think Paul summed up this kind of idea of this journey out of religion through self-righteousness and repentance and ultimately into relationship. In Philippians 3, Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was flawless. However, but however, what were gains to me then now I consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Jesus' invitation to the rich young ruler was to sell everything and he would have treasures in heaven. You and I give so little and God does so much. When a life changed for a couple of thousand dollars, people sheltered from snow, people fed and clothed, people coming to the saving knowledge of who Christ is, people who have spent their lives in darkness because of religion or self-righteousness, being set free through the glory of who Jesus is, through the revelation of repentance and hope and trust in Him. I love the fact that Jesus bookends the conversation by starting by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except for the Father. And after he has unpacked this conversation and the rich young ruler walks away defeated and even the disciples in this moment look and go, how can anyone be saved? Jesus reminds them, it's not about you. What is impossible with you and I is possible through the resurrected Christ that became for us what you and I were unable to be for ourselves who set us free from the law of sin and death. Who took the burden of judgment of ourselves and others upon himself. Who promised to be our God. 
and promised us riches in heaven that would surpass anything that you and I could have amassed in this world. A prayer for you and I, church, is that the kingdoms that we've built for ourselves, they all come crashing down. That you and I would remove this heavy crown and burden that we've placed on our heads. And that that the finished work of Christ in our lives would permeate everything that you and I say and do. And that the church that he's called us to be would not be a church of religion, but be a church of people set free from those things. And it would be the body of Christ in the community that he's called us to be. Be blessed. Thank you so much for listening to the Crossroads Church Podcast. If you would like to listen to past Crossroads Church Podcast, you can go to mycrossroads.co slash podcast. Once again, thanks for listening.